morning, folks. Good morning. Good, good to see all you lovely people. Good to see you. This is, uh, we, we've got our work cut out for us this morning. Let me start with prayer. Father in heaven, uh, we, we're, just, we're happy to be here, Lord. I'm excited about uh, breaking bread together, about looking at the word together, about worshiping together. These people that you love so much, and we're just, we're here by you and, and for you. So, Lord, be, uh, we just take pleasure in our gathering today. Join us, Father, because without you, there's, it doesn't work. So, Lord, I pray that you will teach us about yourself and about your gospel through this passage this morning. Amen. Well, glad to see everybody here. Uh, for those of you online, we wish you could be here with us, but thanks for joining us. We are in Genesis uh, chapter 24, and uh, we've been marching through Genesis. There are some few new faces, so I'll give the, the quick orientation. First of all, we, we shared the teaching. Um, my name is Joel. I'm one of the teaching elders here, and there's a handful of us that kind of rotate through, and we're kind of taking this in chapter chunks. Now, if you compare chapter 23 with chapter 24, what's the first thing you notice? Yeah, chapter 24 is a long chapter, <laughs> but we're so what we're going to do today is we're just going to we're, we're just going to go through and I'm going to tell you the story and talk about it, and we'll read you know we'll read the sections as we go. Normally, I would read the whole passage. I'm I'm not going to do that this morning because it's just it's long, and we're going to cover it anyway. Um, here's what's been going on. God made the world, and uh, He made man and woman, and uh, they disobeyed, and they had to leave Eden. And after they left, so we call that the fall of man. After they leave Eden, there's some interesting stuff that happens, including the sons of God sinning, uh, disobeying God, and interacting with, uh, with man and woman, and making new people called the Nephilim. That's the fall of the sons of God. Then you have the fall of the nations. The fall of the nations happens at the Tower of Babel, when they say, hey, we're going to ascend ourselves into the heavens, and we've preached on that. And um, that was the fall of the nations. So we have the fall of man, the fall of the, of the sons of God, and then the fall of the nations. At the fall of the nations, God divided the nations, and he assigned them to different gods. If that blows your mind, if you've never heard that before, that is what the Bible says. It's not taught on very often, but you can go back and listen to those, uh, those messages. Immediately following that, then God reaches down, you know, proverbially, and says, this guy is the one that I'm choosing to be my nation. And that guy's name was Abraham, at the time Abram. And he said, I'm going to draw out one nation for myself, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And we get the story of Abraham, and that's starting in around chapter 12. So since then, for the last dozen odd chapters, we've been learning about this process and the story by which Abraham is becoming a nation. And it's an interesting strange story, but it's very, very relevant to us because what Scripture teaches is that if you are in Christ, you are of the heritage of Abram. So there's a reason why, there, why all this is, uh, is dwelt on so much. This is our origin in terms of our spiritual heritage and ultimately our familial heritage. Um, one of the things that happens with Abram is uh, they don't have any kids, and God has promised him repeatedly that he's going to be the father to many nations, but Abram and his wife, Sarah, don't have children. And that's a problem if you're trying to father nations. So they try and do, take some shortcuts and work around that. doesn't work so well. Um, then they finally do have the promised son, Isaac, and God said, and then shortly afterwards, well, when Isaac's a, a young man, that God tells Abram, go sacrifice him. And Abram, at this point, believes everything God tells him. So he, believing that he can obey God, and that God's promise can still be fulfilled through this promised son, says, okay. And he goes and he takes him, and God provides a substitute at the last moment. And so we uh, taught on that. That was chapter 22. Then the next thing that happens is Sarah dies. Now you need to recognize that this whole, this whole story that we're going through, not just this chapter, but the, the, each portion of the story is important for two reasons. One, it really happened, and these were real people and real things that really happened. But they're recorded in detail because they are also types of things that are coming in the future. 
And so this story today in particular is so important because pretty much everything in there is directly foreshadowing something that is directly relevant to us. And that's why it's recorded in such detail. We don't get a lot of stories in scripture that have this level of detail down to what people said and how many and where. And, and, and the caution there is you can take any of the types, or you know, when I say type, it's like an analogy. It's foreshadowing something. You can take any of those too far and get weird about it. We don't even have to do that to, to see a whole lot in this story. So let's talk about the death of Sarah briefly, which Johnny taught on last week. It's a beautiful message. Um, all I want you to, to put in your mind at the moment, and if you didn't get Johnny's message last week, go back and listen to it. It's very helpful, and, and, and he, does a, he just does some powerful stuff there. Or the Lord does through Johnny, but we know that's how it works. Um, what is Sarah? Abraham is the type of the father. Sarah is the bride through whom the nation must come. So she's the nation. She's the original nation. Who's, the, who's God's original nation? It's his people, Israel. They haven't been called that yet, but that's what he's doing. She dies. He's grieving her. And the son has to produce another bride so that the nation can continue. So we're going to uh, kind of expand that out a little bit as we go, and you're going to see where, where I'm going with that. So we talked a little bit, too, uh, when I was up here last time. There's themes that come up again and again and again in Scripture. And they, it, they're easy to skim over, but I don't want to skim over them because when something's repeated and, and shows up multiple times, then we should pay attention to it. And one of the themes that we were laughing about last time, because once you start looking at it, it's almost absurd how often it is in Scripture, is waters, wells, and wives. Water, wells, and wives. I, don't, I haven't counted them, but there are many, many times in Scripture, especially with the patriarchs and including Christ, where there's a, a bride and a well, and usually a conflict and a confusion about the bride and the well, over and over, all the way down to John chapter 4, where Jesus has a very detailed conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, and it's one of the same wells that's from one of the same people all the way back here, so it'll bring it full circle, so I'm just going to float that for you to think about so the first thing that happens is, in, in today's story, is uh, Abraham calls his servant. So let's start there. Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had. So they never say this servant's name in this passage, but there's a, it makes all the sense in the world that this is Eliezer of Damascus, who would have been his original heir. The scripture does that when... When a servant is unnamed, then it's very frequently a, a type of the Holy Spirit. When the father is sending his representative saying, go do this thing for me. So think of Abraham as the father, the servant's the Holy Spirit. And he said, put your hand under my thigh. That's, we, there's all sorts of speculation. It just means like this is a very solemn vow. That I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife or my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. He's saying, God's building a people. The wife is very important. The wife is the blood heritage. The wife is, is the blood. It's the, the line. It's the, it's the one through whom the life comes and continues and through whom the nation has to be built. And that's why, no matter how, how confused they got about it, God had to be so specific that... No, it's going to be this man and this woman and this child and nobody else. And Abraham has learned to respect that. So now he's saying, well, it can't be any of these women. But Isaac can't go find a wife. Why not? Because he's in this promised land. And he has to be there. And Abraham doesn't want him to leave the land because this is the land that God has given him. So he's sending the servant back to another land outside of the promised land, back to... Uh, what Abraham has in mind is his, his people. He's saying, go, servant, and go find somebody there who will be the wife for Isaac. And Abraham knows that God has somebody specific in mind. And the servant is recognizing, you know, he's swearing solemnly, basically swearing on, his, on all that he has and swearing before God that he'll be successful in this. 
But he knows, like, this is kind of a tall order. Matchmaking's not easy, is it? Things can go wrong. So the servant has some, uh, first of all, Abram specific. Um, the wife for my son can't be from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But go to my country and my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me back to this land. So he says, okay, what if I find somebody and she doesn't want to leave everything to come to this foreign land that Isaac can't leave? Then he says, uh, must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? He's saying, if she won't come, can he leave so that the lineage can continue? And what does Abram say? He says, no, Isaac can't leave this land. This is where we have to be. This is what God told us. So whoever you find, she's got to be willing, and that's really important, she has to be willing to come. We're going to cause some controversy over that too. So Abram tells him in verse 7, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. Guys, this, this whole story is how you and I wound up here today. God had a people. The people uh, rebelled against him. That's, the, that's the, like the death of Sarah, he sends his Holy Spirit to go find a bride for his son so that he can have a family. The whole story of the Bible is God and his family, and that happens on a couple of different levels. But he's building his family, and the picture of the family is the Holy Spirit says to the people, will you come? And they can say no. You see how important that is? They can say no. Even if so this bride, even if she's the chosen one by God, she can say no. And that ruins everything if she does. And that gets repeated a couple of different times. So he says, if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So having understood the, the commitment he was making, the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. All right. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels. This is, this, is, this is a fun one. Camels are mentioned in the Bible overall about 40 times, but usually they're just mentioned as a part of possessions. Camels are mentioned as being used or ridden on only about 20 times in the Bible, and 17 of them are in this chapter. This, this is all about camels. They go into great detail about the camels, about what the did the camels get enough to eat? Did the camels get to lay down? What position were the camels in? Who was on them and who was not on them? And, and, and so there's and there's a reason for it. So the servant took ten of his camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. At the, we're at the well again. Now we got wells and camels and, and wives and it's, it's great. And he said, Oh Lord. So you get, so imagine the servant is praying. So he's got the camels kneeling. You got the well here. And the servant is praying. Maybe he's kneeling, maybe he's not. And he's asking God for something very specific. He says, Oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to your master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So he's putting a test out there. And he's saying, I need to know that I'm getting the one that you chose, so can we have this specific interaction? The water. So water in Scripture is life, but it's not just life. It's eternal life in Scripture. How do we know that? Because in John chapter 4, let's go to John chapter 4, because this is the, the, 
the close ending of this same story. It's John chapter 4. Jesus goes to a well. And he goes to Jacob's well. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. So it's a well, it's in the same area, same region, same people, same family. And he meets this woman there, and this woman is from Samaria. Samaria, the Samaritan people are the tribes of Israel that were exiled and never came back. So they're literally the relatives of what would be called the Jews at this time. The Jews were specifically Judah, the tribe of Judah that came back during the exile. So that's biblical history. So what, you, what a lot of people don't realize is 10 of the tribes left, or 10 of the tribes were taken, Judah stayed, and then Judah was taken, and then Judah came back. The other ones never really came back. And so they didn't like each other. They had this feud. Even though they were all basically the same bloodline and they all came from Abraham, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along. They wouldn't associate with each other at all. And the Samaritans were very humiliated by this because essentially they, they had lost their heritage and their birthright. They were the lost people of Israel. And as far as they could tell, they had missed out on being God's people. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So same thing the servant's going to ask this woman. He says, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Remember, what's water? It's the life. It's the heritage. It's the eternal life. It's always eternal life. It's the thing that whenever, when there's a metaphor in the Old Testament of death, it's a vessel holding water and the vessel breaks. That's, and uh, Ecclesiastes uses that a couple of different times and a few other places. So, and that's death when it happens. When, this is the, the analogy that Solomon uses when he's describing his own death. He says, someday the vessel's going to break. Because that's what we are. We're earthenware vessels, scripturally. But there's this thing in us that outlives our body. So she's having this, this meta-conversation with Jesus, and they both know. She, the Samaritan woman's a, a very, very, very smart lady. She's very quick on the uptake, and she recognizes the statements he's making are an extremely big deal and that they're not just talking about water. She's saying, what are you that this water that comes from my heritage, and, and you have no, no vessel that you can approach this with, and yet you're telling me that you can, that you can uh, provide water that's better than what I already have here? Where would you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Flip over to chapter 7. This is... Jesus um, getting rowdy at a feast on the la- in 737. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. There's a whole lot of stuff we could go into there. But Jesus is, uh, is equating, he's making the metaphor and saying, you have water, and you've been drawing it, and you've been doing the hard work, but I'm here to bring something much, much greater. Okay, so let's go back to the other servant talking to the other bride. By the way, as a Samaritan woman and Jesus talk, the thing that comes out is she doesn't know who her husband is because she's had too many husbands. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a bride meta conversation at a well about eternal life. Okay, let's go back to where we were. So, before he had finished speaking, I'm in verse 15 of chapter 24. Behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abram's brother. So, Abram had a brother named Nahor. Nahor had a son. The son was Bethuel. And that, that daughter, 
So this is what um, what the the great grandniece, something like that. Um, that daughter uh, comes out with her water jar on her shoulder. So they carry you. You know you can picture it: a young woman carrying these big jars. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. So that'd be heavy, because she has to go down and back up. And she's carrying a heavy jar full of water. And anybody who's carried water knows it's, it's hard. It, 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 it's a weird weight to carry. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my lord. And she quickly let down the jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. How many camels does he have? Ten. How much water does a camel drink? It's like 20 to 30 gallons, depending on how thirsty they are. How much, how much water can she probably carry at a time? If she's really strong and she's got to walk in and out of the city, a few gallons maybe? So how many times is she going to have to go up and down and up and down and up and down? This is hours of work. She just committed, and, and maybe she thought he had one camel, and then she saw she had ten, and she had to follow through. And I was, <laughs> you ever get that, where you kind of get roped into something, and you're like, what am I doing? You know, um, once, many years ago, I was, uh, I was on a farm that was having a shearing day, and I was just an innocent bystander. I was just passing through. This doesn't, why I was there doesn't matter. But there were these big, um, uh, these, these uh, Australian guys who were shearing uh, sheep, and alpacas, and as I found out the hard way later, llamas. And these guys knew what they were doing, but animals don't like to be shorn. They fight it. So they had about three guys there, and alpaca, they were fine with the sheep, but alpacas and llamas are big, strong animals. Llamas are, you know, a few hundred pounds. Alpacas are, you know, 100 to 200 pounds, typically. And they spit, and they kick, and they scream. And these guys were having trouble with it, and I said, look, there's one animal in particular, so I was like, I'll step in, I'll help you wrestle this thing to the ground. About four hours later, as I'm still wrestling animals to the ground, I was like, what have I done? Like, I, I stepped in and I couldn't leave because once I was in, the guy who was in charge was just like, great, okay, you be there, you be there, you be there. And I was there all day, just shearing animals with these sweaty Australian guys who we could barely understand each other. And I was like, well, I guess I had nothing else going on today. <laughs> and so we, we sheared a llama, a few of them, and they... Uh, they don't, want, they don't like to be shorn. So, so maybe it was one of those situations where she got in and she's like, oh, I didn't realize like, there's a whole caravan. But whatever it is, she's showing this tremendous commitment and hospitality and this service so that the camels can be watered. Now, what do camels do? They carry you. They do work. And what you're going to see is through, as we go through the story of Abram, there's going to be pictures of who, who's on the camel and who's off the camel. I think that there's a very good case to be made that the camels are the law. The camels are the thing that, that can do the work, but if there's no water in it, and, and they carry water for you, that's what makes camels really, really good, is they can go a long time without water, but if, if there's no actual water, then there's no, real, there's no real point to it. So she's the one bringing the water to the camels. I'll let you chew on that the way you want to, but uh, let me make a point of it. She's going to be on the camels when she comes to meet Jesus, and then she's going to get off the camel. Later, the descendant, or when, she's, when I say Jesus, I mean Isaac, you know, the type there. When he comes to meet his bride, she gets off the camel. Later, we're going to see there's a descendant of Isaac and Rebekah named Jacob, and Jacob and has a wife named Rachel. And there's literally a time where it's specified that she's sitting on a camel saddle that has idols in it, and it's not on a camel. So there's just like, there's a reason these things are in here. So you get another bride sitting on the saddle of a camel with false gods, but she's specifically not on the camel. And she's lying while she's doing it. Isn't that weird? This stuff's in the Bible, and there's like a whole, a whole lot in there. Okay, so she comes out. She says, I'm going to water your camels. And um, this, we're in verse 20. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and she drew for all his camels. And what's his servant do? The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord has prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the servant has made his decision, 
He takes two gold, he takes a gold ring weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels. So he's, he, he doesn't know who she is yet, but he's going to give her these extravagant gifts. And it's, it's not a, a direct um, translation, but basically if, this, if you had this much gold today, just this weight of gold, it'd be like seven or $8,000 worth of gold. Probably a little bit twisted uh, to think about it, but it's, it's the equivalent of many months or potentially many, many days and up to months of wages that he just gave her. She said, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. That's, that would be fun if we all introduced ourselves that way. She added, we have plenty of both straw. And he asked her, he said, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? That's an interesting question, too, because what's the whole thing about your father's house? He's saying, can we come? Yeah, Jesus talks about in my father's house, there's room for you. So he's saying, is there room in your father's house for, to spend the night? She says, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. Because he, he recognizes how significant this is. And he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. It's interesting that it's the mother, not the father. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Remember this guy. He's going to come up a lot later. And uh, he, he and Jacob are not going to get along real well. And Jacob is going to be the... So Jake, Laban will ultimately be Jacob's uncle um, because... You know, so, so this is Rebecca's brother. And notice how much authority he takes in this situation. He speaks almost as much as her father speaks. She went to tell Laban. Laban ran out. So everybody's running back and forth between the spring here. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, what's one thing we learn about Laban later? He's a greedy guy. He's a devious, greedy guy. And he will, he will bend the rules and, and whine and wheedle and blame and twist and take more all the time. So when he sees this gold on her, he's like, all right, I got to go see who this is. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus and thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. So you've got these watered camels, and you've got this, this Holy Spirit type standing there at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. I mean, the camels are really important. Like We're getting a lot of detail on them. I wonder if you can shear a camel. Um, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then the food was set before him to eat. So, by the way, when the servant came, you got the, the servant, he has 10 camels, but he has a whole bunch of people with him. Not, nobody in their right mind would go by themselves with loads of treasures through this, you know, this territory on a multi-day journey. I didn't look up how many days it is, but it's, it's a while. And so, uh, so nobody would do that by himself. He, we know Abram has a lot of young men. We know he has mercenaries. So this guy, it's, it's not just having somebody over. Like, they're hosting a, a large group of people on short notice. Then food was set before him, and the servant said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. So he said, I'm Abram's servant. I'm going to go quickly through this because it's, it's a repetition, but there's a few differences we may point out. He said, I'm Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he's become great. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all he has. If you think about this, this is a foreshadowing of telling somebody the gospel. They're saying... There's a God, a real God, the God, the powerful God. He has a son, and he's asking you a question. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when he was old, and to him he's given him all he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife from my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you'll be free from my oath. 
That's not exactly what Abraham said, is it? Because their agreement wasn't if they won't give her to you, it said if she won't come. But he's, requ- he's, re- he's presenting to them the decision that they have to make. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms, and I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has led me by right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So he just told him why he's here, but he hasn't asked for anything yet. Now he says, now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right and the left, or the right or the left. That's the question that we're, that we're faced with in Scripture. He says, all right, this is what happened. This is where you are. This is who I am. What are you going to do with it? So he's saying, make a decision. Then Laban and Bethuel, so the father and the son, answered him and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. But they haven't asked Rebekah yet. And you'll notice that the servant's very specifically going to force a situation where, where she has to make a decision as well. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and of garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave her brother and her mother costly ornaments. So he's bringing gifts. You get the Holy Spirit here bearing gifts and blessing the family that is willing. And then, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. So it's one, one day they stayed, one evening. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while. They're like, hey, we just found out she's leaving. Like, we, can, you, can we have a little time with her before she goes? And there's probably some relatives who want to come celebrate. They should have a bridal shower or something like that, right? Said, let the young man, let, sorry, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Saying, make a decision. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And this is the, the critical text. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. That's the whole point of the story. That's the, the whole point. If somebody showing up and saying, there's, there's a king. He's the, the true legitimate king. He has an heir, a true legitimate heir who inherits everything. He wants you to join his family. Will you go with him or not? She said, I will go. So they sent her away, Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and you'll find out, and some, she had some entourage that came with her. So it's a big deal. It's not one person leaving. Like, they're merging households across a large geography here is what's going on. And Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebecca and said to her, and this is very important, O oh, sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring, as a singular, possess the gate of those who hate him. Now that should sound familiar because if you go to Genesis 22 at the sacrifice of um, Isaac, then this is what angel of the Lord, this is what Jesus says to Abraham. I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand, as the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So in both blessings, they're talking about a singular, a singular person who results from this family line. And who's saying that in that passage? That's Jesus saying it about himself. And we know that Jesus is here too because it says the angel of the Lord went with the servant 
and he's watching all this, and he knows that this is his bloodline. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels. They're, they're on the camels. They're, they're where they're supposed to be. They're watered camels that are bringing her, that are bringing the bride to the heir. You see the analogy here? This is like when we choose to go to Christ and we become his bride as a church, there's a, there's a, a system that we choose to operate in, not because, not because the camels are the groom, they're not. So if you think about the camels as, as the law, you're going to see that there's a, a law that Abraham's already following. Um, look at, or I know we're tight on time, look at verse 20, or chapter 26 real quick. In verse 4 and 5, in your offspring, this is what God promises to Isaac after he... Um, has married Rebekah, and your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That's a weird statement, isn't it? Why? Because the law hasn't been given yet. The Mosaic law comes hundreds of years later. But, but there was something there already that Abraham knew that if you're going to walk before Yahweh, you walk a certain way and there are certain things you do and certain things you don't do because it represents the will of God. And I think that, 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 that that's what the camels represent. So Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. We can have the worship team come on up. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. Why would it be interesting that the type of Christ sees the law looming on the horizon? Because that's what Jesus came to do, is to fulfill the law that was looming on the horizon, and it was his problem to fulfill it. And she looks up, and what does she see? Yeah, she looks up, and she sees her groom. He's seeing the law, and she's seeing her family that she's chosen to join. And she dismounted from the camel. And she said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And this is really important. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. Remember, who's Sarah in this? She's the original family, the original family that had been planted in the land. She had died and been specifically buried in the land, but the tent was empty now. And so Isaac takes this new willing bride who comes to him, who leaves her old land and comes to him, and it says, and he brings her into his mother's tent. And took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That's the end of a really important saga in Scripture, and we know it's the end because the next thing that we get is a genealogy. And what do we learn about genealogies in Genesis? They bookend narratives. Every time there's a genealogy, it's a transition to a new narrative. So that's the, the, the narrative we've, we've been in from the calling of Abraham all the way through to the bride of Isaac is one long section of Genesis, one long narrative, and we just got to the end of it. Um, there is, uh, there's so much, there's so much that, that we could continue to go on in this, but I, what I, what I did here, and I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to come back and tie it together a little bit, but what I did here is I, I tried to place before you all the pictures that are interacting here. This is a real thing, and these are real people, and this really happened, and, but, it's also telling us something about ourselves, and that's why it's recorded specifically the way it's recorded. This is the gospel telling us about the Father and how He sends His Holy Spirit to, to work in us and to help us realize that we need to agree to be with the Son, and that if we are, we inherit everything He has, and that there's, tempor and that there's a, a law 
in place. And the law is not the salvation, but it's, it's the work that helps us get, that helps us uh, bear the burden, basically. That's what the camels do. And the water that we really need is the eternal life. But we need two things, not just water, but we, ha- we need the water and we need the blood. And those two things have to be together. And the, the, the bride is always the, uh, the bearer of the blood. She is the bloodline. And we're going to see, you know, when, when, you know, millennia later, when Jesus is on the cross, it's water and blood in his heart when he dies to fulfill the law. So you see how all these pictures come together. Let's worship this first song together, and then I'll come back and uh, wrap it up a little bit and lead us in um, communion. There are parts of the Bible that get skipped a lot, but they they shouldn't be. There's actually a lot to this. I'm going to read to you from Jeremiah chapter 2. I don't have to exposit it, but just think about what we talked about today and then listen to what this is saying. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. It sounds a lot like the story we just read. In a land that was not sown, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt and disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. What's he saying? He says, these are my people. People who, who ate of my people, who devoured my people, they all got destroyed. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? That word is actually the, uh, the name of a demon that we just always translate as worthless, but it's Belial. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of desert and pits and brought in, in a land of drought and deep darkness in a land that none passed through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Remember the camels. Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me and they prophesied by Baal and went for things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and in your children's children I will contend. For cross the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if such a thing, see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I'm also going to read from Proverbs. Oh, going the wrong direction. Proverbs chapter 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Listen to the, the death versus life contrast here. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. 
Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. I'm going to go one more place. This is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Remember the blessing that Isaac gets about his offspring possessing the gate of those who hate him. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Potter's vessels hold water. That's what they do. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. You may be wondering, like, what, what do those passages have to do with each other? What do they have to do with what we just read? And it's, it's, there's a, a dozens of other places we could go, but they're all saying the same thing. They're saying marriage is a picture of the relationship between you and the God you serve. That's the picture. And there's blood and water and rights and heritage that are there and disobedience to that relationship that's been established between you and your creator is very similar and in that Proverbs passage in particular is like adultery. It's like leaving a relationship and it results in death. If you, don't, if, if you don't kiss the sun, and if the sun, if you're, if you're thinking from the opposite mindset, if the sun isn't faithful to the bride, then it's death. I'm not making a statement about marriage. I'm making a statement about Christ. Marriage is a picture of that, but the heritage matters. And it matters not just on a... On a, on a conceptual level, this, this is the story of the universe. This is the story of the nations. This is, this is what happens. This is the story of, um, of, of the, the, the kings, the original council, rebelling against God and trying to devour his people. And those kings aren't, aren't earthly kings. And this is the story of how He's going to draw his people to take his nations back from them and to get the inheritance back. And he's going to do it through this one family line that we just learned the origins of. And he made the origins and recorded it for us as a perfect picture of what he's trying to accomplish. But there's one thing, there's one thing that can ruin it. And what's that? If she says no. And that's that's our whole job is to hear about this groom who's asking us to join his family in a land we don't understand, who we haven't, who we haven't directly met and we can't see, and we have to leave everything to do it, and we have to say yes or no because he's not going to drag us kicking and screaming. So the gospel is... Will you go? Will you take this man? Will you take this, this heir to the universe whom you've never really seen, the son of the father who's going to inherit everything? Will you take him? Yes or no? That's the gospel. And if she says yes, everything changes. The families emerge. The, the heritage is renewed. The blood and the water are brought back together. And the family, and she's taken into the tent of his mother. And it's all restored, and all the nations are blessed, and there's an offspring that's, that will conquer the entire earth. And that offspring really is the heir. So that's, 
If you're not following that picture, that's Christ. And he's asking us, will you join my family? And we can say yes or we can say no. Say yes. Well, how, the Bible would be pretty short if she'd said no. Like nobody would have cared there's, because there, we'd just be under the oppression of Belial and Baal and those ones that were just referenced in that Jeremiah 2 passage, being devoured, God's people being devoured by demons. He's offering us another way, but you have to say yes. If you've said yes and you already know Jesus, then take the warning that was in that Proverbs chapter 5. Be faithful to him. Be faithful to him. Don't start taking your, the, the eternal life he's given you and throwing it around like it doesn't matter. Rejoice in what he's given you because the alternatives are death. And if you don't know him, then you're in that position of Rebecca where you had some blessing from him. You've, you've seen that there's something there. You wouldn't be here listening to this otherwise. And he's asking you, will you go? Will you take him? Will you accept this offer? And, she's, and some people say, yeah, that sounds good. And then when it's time to go, they don't want to go. That's why the servant said, don't delay me, go now. And if that's the case with you where you're saying, well, that sounds good. I like a lot of things about it, but you've never really actually gone to Christ and said, I'm in your family now but you've just sort of enjoyed the blessings on the periphery and you like talking about it and maybe even celebrating it, but you've never really believed in him. You've never met him. You've never been taken into his tent. Then it's time to say yes and go. And if you don't know how to do that, then it starts by talking to your savior and telling him that you reject everything else and that he's the one that you want and asking him to save you because he's the one who fulfills the law. I'm happy to pray with you. Pray together, guys. Um, we're going to do communion. Communion is, is where we remember what it costs Christ to be able to take us as his bride. Um, if, you're, if you're new here, we, you, during the music, you can just walk up and take communion yourself. If you don't know Christ, don't take communion until you do. The Bible says that's a very dangerous thing to do because you're, you're pretending something that's not true. Don't pretend when it comes to Jesus. So if you don't know what that means, then come talk to me or talk to any of the other elders, or most anybody in this room will be happy to explain that to you. Uh, this is also time for joyful giving. Uh, we have giving boxes in the back. Most people give online, and that's great, and we appreciate it. Um, we, don't, we don't need your money if it's not joyful. I don't get any of it, by the way. Um, it's, it's, a, it's my gift to the church and my service of God to come teach here. So take your resources to God. Take yourself to God. Take your prayers. Remember what he's asking you. And ask yourself if you're in the family or not. Let's continue to worship.